I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now you're welcome along to the Huddle Breakdown and to call here with you alongside Alan Morrison and Juco James as always. A few people in the comments getting restless so we are finally kicking off just about five minutes after this sad time of six o'clock but we're here and we're going to be talking about Celtic being nine points clear at the top of the SPFL title going into the World Cup break after their 2-1 win against Ross County. But we're going to kick off with some breaking news from the day and that is that Joseph Juranovic has reportedly uh, not rejected a Celtic contract, but talks have broke down between him and the club, and the World Cup is going to be a springboard for potentially our starting right right back to leave the club. So this was reported widely across the different news organisation. Fabrizio Romano had it, and this could be the moment where one of Ange's first signings leaves the club after the World Cup. He does have the World Cup with Croatia to sort of springboard, and maybe if he has a good one, maybe up that price tag a little bit as well for Celtic. So that's what we're going to kick off with. Alan, if you look at this transfer as a whole, it probably makes sense. It probably is what Celtic intended to do with Juranovic in the first place. Not too often we buy a, an international player of his stature and in terms of the, the international team that he starts in his position for. Celtic signed Juranovic for £2.5 million. At the time, on a five-year contract, he was 26 at the time. He's 27 now and has four years left in his contract. So what are we thinking in terms of the transfer fee that we would be potentially <laughs> hoping to accept for this? <laughs> yeah, so I'll tell you why I was laughing later. Um, yeah, first of all, I was a bit sceptical to read about you know negotiating a new contract when he's got four years left on his contract. That seemed rather odd, but... The source for this seems to be, you know, we've got Stephen McGowan in the in the mail running with it. Stephen seems to be very well connected in Celtic. So, it's, and as you say, if Fabrizio Man, Romano's got his Twitter account all over it, that seems to be the, the gold standard these days for for transfer gossip. So, um, you know, if I was looking through the Celtic squad, it, it would be the one that made the most sense to me. I think, as you alluded to, and uh, I think that's absolutely absolutely right because. For many reasons, um, one is is age. I mean, really, um, and the fact that you know, I suspect he will be a starter for Croatia. So, in terms of that shot window, is is good timing. Um, and you know, the manager has said quite openly that we need to be much more aggressive about our player trading model. And by more aggressive, it means probably a, a, not just more, you know, not just getting better players, but also actually turning over faster, having a, a bigger turnover. You know, I think the um, 
the Swiss Ramble analysis of Celtic's accounts, which was done in the week, uh, which is you know a stunningly thorough piece of work for somebody who you know has got no skin in the game and does hundreds of football clubs. Actually, it's tremendous. I don't know if it's one person or whether it's a an army of them, but you know, it's, it's a tremendous piece of work. Anyway, um, you know th- there was a very very telling um, piece of that analysis which showed that you know Celtic are in Scottish terms remarkably successful in um, selling players um, going back 10 years. But in European terms, which is should be the benchmark, as James has, has, told, has, has, has opined many a time correctly, uh, we're, we're, we're nowhere uh, in terms of just the volume. You know, t- selling players for 7 million and 5 million and 3 million and what have you, and the occasional 10 million, is great in Scotland in terms of you know that that, that sort of um, keep, you know, keeping keeping control in that market, but you know you, we're not near we're not near the regularly selling a twenty five million or a thirty million every year, and you only do that by increasing the rate of churn, getting more players in, um, selling for higher, getting more players that cost you more to sell for higher. It's a virtuous cycle that you you have to get into. So if that's that's I think it's strategically where we're trying to get to. Juranovic mm. appears to me to be one of the the, the 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 better cases. Not only that, because you know as well, we've got an, a, a more than able deputy in the short term in in Tony Ralston. So um, it does make it does make a lot of sense. I think is what is the bottom line. But as I say, it's just a bit odd that it's it, it's you know is 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 he ag- agitating for a move or is it a bit of push and pull on both sides? I don't know. I'm still I'm still a little bit skeptical about that. I would say Celtic are probably more than happy to use the World Cup to springboard them. Unfortunately for them, Croatia don't really have that strong of a team going into this World Cup as opposed to the last one. So whether or not he'll perform to his best is another question altogether. But James, there's a lot lot goes into transfer fees in the first place and there's a lot goes into sort of making these transfers happen. I think, firstly, you have to look at the precedent in Scotland. What is the record? And that is Kieran Tierney, 27 million, but he was 22 years old. Calvin Bassey, 23 million to Ajax this year, also 22. Juranovic is 27. Now, the four-year four year deal, that definitely plays into Celtic's hands in terms of the uh, negotiation um, tactics that they can use in it. But there are only a select few clubs in the world, I would argue, that are going to take a gamble on a 27-year-old right back. And that would be a bigger club rather than a smaller to mid-table club in the likes of the Premier League. That he was linked with Atletico Madrid during the summer. That sounds to me like an Atletico Madrid type signing, a 27-year-old rather than going for the... like a, Let's use Southampton as the best example of that. They don't buy 27-year-olds. They buy younger players, as do most teams that are trying to use good, smart transfers uh, in order to get value in the market. So this, to me, sounds like it's a bigger club that are going to come in for, for Juranovic here. Yeah, and I, I think his uh, profile um, suits something like a playing style of, of Atletico Madrid, meaning that um, you know one of his big um, attributes is carrying the ball and and countering. Uh, so that that's a you know kind of textbook um, Atletico when they're again when they're up against um, you know the top teams in their league and and in European competition. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, I would think it would be you know kind of a mid-table Big Five um, league type of of team that would be looking at them. Um, and 
you know, that's basically, I mean, they've obviously had a really good run at times in the last, uh, you know, what, six, seven years, but that's kind of where they've settled in, in Spain, even, um, you know, they've kind of fallen out of that top four or five, um, and, you know, they haven't modernized. They're one of the clubs that, you know, is still kind of sticking to the old ways uh, to a large degree. So a very, very manners, uh, manager-centric, um, old-school philosophy. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I got a lot of uh, warm um, embrace back in August by saying <laughs> we should be selling him and Jackamacus in August if we could get that kind of money for him. I mean, again, uh, uh uh, I, I was heartened to hear Ange's comments um, because if you can get, let's say, 20, 25 million in total for those two players, I mean, that that's the aggressive kind of model that, you know, Alan's referencing and that Ange mentioned. Because, um, again, you just think about mm. the multiplier effect. You get, you know, let's say 20, 25 million, you turn that into three, three Jotas or... You know, and, and it, that's what's been there's only so many Hatates and O'Reilly's that we're going to be able to pluck out of the market. Right. At some point, we're going to have to start spending money. You know, we've had so many needs, so much of an overhaul required. The depth was so bad last season um, that, you know, for us to kind of get up that ramp where we're spending five, six, seven million as a matter of course. Meaning that we take the Hitate one to two, three million and ramp that up to five, six, seven. And then the stretch ones like the Jotas then are the 10, 11, 12 million. And that's, I think that's where we're, we should be going in the next year or two. But that requires starting the process of selling some of these names, including Jota, including, you know, and anyone who's not nailed down, which probably is McGregor, <laughs> um, pretty much everyone else for the most part's probably got a for sale sign and they should um in this whole process i'm not saying not saying you sell everybody i'm just saying that you you know you need to monetize your most attractive assets that that makes sense uh, and i think for the point that you guys mentioned i mean his profile is i mean this is when you sell them um so hit the cash register yeah, i mean let's be brutally honest about this right what we saw in the champions league is that I would, I would say, and I'm, I'm going to get abuse for this, but the vast majority of players in the team aren't good enough for that level, and they're clearly very, you know, too, you know, too good for the SPFL. So you could, you could almost sell, you know, you've got to start finding a way to get to that better quality of player if you want to truly compete at Champions League level. We were utterly outclassed by Real Madrid, and we gave it a great shot. We were brave, we had a right go, but we were utterly outclassed. I mean, there was an enormous gulf between the two teams. And if we want to start to bridge that gap, we're going to have to start churning the squad and getting, as James said, not the not the three million, two and a half million little gems. It's the spending 11 million on enormous potential and turning it into 30, 40 million. Frankly, that's the way, the only way we're going to do it. And you got to start yeah. and that's, somewhere. Yeah, and that, that, that's part of the process as well. This first sort of wave of and signings, they were they weren't going to sell for the 35 to 50 million range you know you're not bringing in a 2 million player very very rarely you're bringing in a 2 million player and you're selling him for you know a, a couple of multipliers of that we will probably probably end up selling Juranovic for the range of 12 to 15 million in the same vein as Chris Ryer <laughs> in, in that in that aspect but 
if you think about the way the transfers work and the way that money works, and this is something that a lot of people don't realize, is that, okay, let's say Atletico Madrid come in for Juranovic and pay us 12 to 15 million. That's not just immediately in your bank account. That'll be worked out in terms of the amount of years it's in his contract and it'll come in over the course of a number of years. So if Celtic sell Juranovic, for example, and they get in someone on a loaned buy option and that loaned buy options five to six million like Jota was, then Celtic will have that in their accounts the following year in order to uh, make make use of that five to six million they're, they're bringing in. And then a couple of years down the line, they sell that player, sort of like what they're doing with Jota. So this is a long process. It's not going to be, okay, we buy Juranovic, we sell Juranovic, we have Juranovic's replacement. This might be a two to three year thing where we're, we're bringing in and selling these players off. But for me, this is good, James, because this shows that not only, again, the one thing you can say about Ange is he's been a man of his word. And not only about a week or two ago, he was talking about ramping up this aggressive transfer policy. And it seems like that's the way this is going to go. I would not be surprised if it was Celtic that leaked this story to the press as opposed to Juranovic leaking it himself. Yeah, I, I, I don't have a strong feeling on that, but I, I, I think that the, um, the other part of this is uh, we have a uh, locked and loaded, capable first-team player to, to, to step in, meaning that, you know, e- even if it, let, let's just say that it was Greg Taylor that this was the rumor about. And obviously it's not a completely different situation, but just hypothetically, I would have a little bit more anxiety that Bernabe would then be the, you know, the number one and there's no depth behind him to speak of that I know of, unless there's somebody, you know, with, with the B team that I'm not aware of. Um, so I, I have a lot more comfort that Ralston's the person that's going to step in here. Um, cause at the domestic level, he's proven that he's more than capable if you know we've had this discussion in, in ways he's actually been a superior option um to Juranovic domestically against a lot of opposition and um so it's a question of depth then uh you know who's who's then and to your point whether that's a loan whether that's a somebody that you identify as a loan to buy or maybe you bring in someone who's younger you know more of a premium prospect for a larger amount that then has that you know second half of the season to get into the system and you know acclimated to uh the league and the culture and everything so that you know that's how you start this conveyor belt um and you know it that's the great part is we do have someone that i think is a very low risk um person to absorb that production in those minutes um and i mean that's ideal again that's the idea that's the idea here is to be able to do this so that when you have someone to sell the market conditions are right the relationship is right for all parties involved or most importantly for the club that you're not taking a huge step down in quality in order to take advantage of the financial part of it um so here we're going to get the upside of the of the money the production's going to remain comparable for the rest of the season again barring some kind of injury situation um maybe lock and load the next guy stepped up for the depth or maybe you know maybe it's the person for next champions league season that's a little younger that that just needs some time to get ready for that uh level of competition win 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 other, yeah. other than you know again this is the emotional part of it if, if Duranovich is your favorite player this sucks right mm-hmm. so you know there's the supporter side of this which is when you you know you lose um uh fa- fan favorites then you know that's never fun but from a from a ruthless uh, 
uh, anal uh, analytics and and uh, kind of a business sense uh, perspective, it's to me it's uh, a slam dunk. Mm -hmm. I should say at this point that it's not confirmed that he's leaving the club. It's just that there are stories um, going around that he has rejected or the talks have broken down between him and the club. So it looks like he's uh, on the way out the door. I actually almost burst out laughing when you said that uh, we don't have a low risk player for left back because sure Liam Scales is only on loan. He's, he's does he have a callback call option next year? Does he have a callback? <laughs> and I'm, I'm, pretty pretty sure, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's just it's and, just a loan. Uh, it's not a loan to buy. So yeah, rumors that Ange just deleted his number from his phone are, are scurrilous. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> short short memories on this podcast that Liam Scales is only away on loan. That's that's the problem. Um, no, look. So that's the that's the Juranovic news of the day. We'll wait and see how that develops over the next couple of weeks. Let's hope he does have a good. World Cup campaign with Croatia because it would be nice to see a Celtic player doing well on the, the biggest scale in, in, in football. But we'll move on to the Ross County wins. 2-1 to Celtic in the end and Celtic go nine points clear because of results elsewhere. This is best case scenario for Celtic was drop points elsewhere and them to pick up three points. Although it did look a little hairy at uh, one point in time when Celtic were chasing the game and eventually got uh, two brilliant goals two absolutely touches of class from Hatate and parts of two of them. And Haksabanovic, I told you, I said when he gets his first goal, they're just going to keep on rolling. And that was a lovely finish at the weekend as well. So, look, Alan, I said on this channel on Monday or Tuesday or wherever I did that video that we weren't going to talk about VAR. I was not going to talk about VAR, but you insist that we, <laughs> we, we must talk about the elephant in the room. <laughs> So let's let's just you did a brilliant article, I must be said, on your website, Celtic by Numbers, where you go through what your key issues are for this. So if you just want to outline your argument and then we can unpick it from there. Yeah, no, no, no problem. And 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 you know, I know you'd be only being playful, Enda, because you know, my my interest actually isn't in VAR, is because as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, VAR is a, is a a process it's it's a it's a amalgamation of humans and technology and procedures which many countries have already used for many years uh scotland's only just started using it there are clearly a lot of teething problems and we've clearly got a kind of pound shop version with only so many cameras and so forth um and there will be therefore issues because of that that's all pretty boring to me really um, and that isn't actually what my article was about okay my article was actually about the scottish football association and it's continuing toxic relationship with, with specifically Celtic Football Club, but I believe you know most of Scottish football, and that's that's the story. The story really um, was fairly comical about the what happened that stopped there being. A, if, it seems to be a lack of a definitive image to allow uh, anyone to judge whether Jota was offside or not. But the Jota offside is is really neither here nor there. The story here starts with the SFA statement that was issued in response to Celtic asking for clarification as to why Jota was ruled offside given that there was no definitive image um, produced uh, on the night of the game. And the SFA you just statement... just need to get your eyes checked out, Alan. That was so definitive, it wasn't even... I mean, come on. <laughs> get to the ophthalmology. The SFA, the SFA statement, although very brief, uh, managed to be uh, incredibly revealing. And the, the level of ineptitude uh, displayed in that statement is staggering for such a brief uh, piece of uh, public relations. Uh, it, it really was. I mean, the arrogance 
and uh, dripping from it, throwing your broadcasting partner under the bus, taking no accountability for the fact that you are the accountable party for running that the operation of VAR. Uh, it was just just appalling. But but what was the the most interesting was was the confirmation in that statement that, that the decision to give Jata offside had been taken in the VAR room. Because what that meant was they had to use the evidence available. And what we've clearly seen and, and what hasn't been contradicted yet uh, is that yet that evidence was inconclusive. Uh, and when you when you look at that and you look at it in, in the light of asking the question, well, what should they have done in that situation? Then it's, this is where it starts to unravel for the for the SFA, because you know, the way I framed it was, the re I, I think they had three, I think David Dickinson, because it was David Dickinson that made the decision, not Willie Collum. Okay, the SFA have confirmed that. Willie Collum just, you know, he, he the, the ball went in the net, his linesman raised the flag over to UVAR. And uh, I think that David Dickinson, who was the, the lead VAR, was the senior VAR at the time, um, had three options, okay? The first option, I think, was the what I'll call the common sense option. And the common sense option to me was to say is to tell the truth, right? Just tell the truth. And what was the truth? The truth was the camera was for whatever reason inoperable. We haven't got a definitive image. I'm sorry, Willie, we've screwed up. We'll we'll sort it out in the wash up afterwards and we'll all learn from it and move on. What I suggest you do in the meantime is go with the on-field decision. And they would have ruled it offside. And I, I would have been perfectly happy with that. And that is actually a sensible thing to have done. But they chose not to do that. So what did they do? They chose to um, uh, do choose the uh, the second option, which is you know, to rule, uh, sorry, to rule uh, the, the goal offside. But the problem with that is that they're actual they've actually published guidance, which very much mirrors the guidance that's been in operation in England, which you'll know more about than me, Enda, for for two years, which is that. They, 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 they reckoned there was about 20 goals in the English Premier League in the 1920 season that, that really um, fell within an area of doubt that was probably too narrow. Uh, and so essentially what they did was they kind of thickened the lines, but essentially what they're saying, I mean, that's literally what they did. They thickened, they thickened the lines that are used to assess the... Yeah, uh, that's, that's the literally what they did this year. They just yeah, yeah, thickened yeah. the lines. And, and, and then the rule... Well, thumb now is, is if there's overlap between the lines, then it falls into the we can't be sure. And if we can't be sure, the default position is benefit of the doubt to the attacking side. And the SFA have issued guidance, which I, I, I got, got access to, it's, it's public data, um, which shows that they have followed the same the same uh, uh, protocol in that regard. So what David uh, Dickinson should have done if he was following the manual would have been to say, well, clearly the image that I'm using is is not definitive. Therefore, we default to a benefit of the doubt to the attacking team and they should have awarded the goal. But they didn't do that either. So they chose a third option, which was to um, you know, disallow the goal. Um, and as I say, the, you know, th what they then did in the in the um in the that, that appalling statement was infer, infer that Hawkeye was in some way magical, and that by having a Hawkeye on the other 18-yard line and using the word calibration, uh, the inference was that that would magically allow you to still make the decision in the VAR room, which is what they did. Now, that's, I would I would suggest, through if, if there is evidence that you have another image that they work from, then we should all see that. Otherwise, that looks like a, a, a very disingenuous, just, you know, uh, way of framing, of framing it. So you've got somebody who's not followed the procedures, and you've got 
a disingenuous way uh, uh, that the, 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 the technology appears to have been to have been used. So, and because because the reality of it is that you need three components to marry up to be able to allow you to make a definitive call. You need a camera pointed at the incident. You need the Hawkeye technology to allow you to to tell you where the, what the position of objects were, and then you need a human being to to look at the relative position of the objects. And the human being has to then draw the lines for then a decision to be made. All those things have to happen. Otherwise, you can't definitively say. So if the camera doesn't work and you're using a Hawkeye from 50 yards away, then inevitably you're compromised in terms of the quality of the decision you can make. So the reason that this is a problem, if, if, this, if everything that I've said is, is as it is and there isn't any more evidence that someone's holding back, then you know what I, the way I look at these things is I'm looking for patterns. And if you look throughout, you know, the recent history, there is a pattern of SFA deceit when it comes to Celtic. And I'm not making accusations here. This is a matter of public record. Jim Farry lied to Celtic, a matter of public record. Doogie, Doogie, Doogie MacDonald and um, Hugh Dallas lied to Celtic. It's a matter of public record. And we know, we know Alex Thompson, Alec Thompson, the well-respected Channel 4 investigative journalist, uh, called out the revolving door that that goes on that went on between Rangers and the SFA at the time that the EBTs were operational. Campbell Ogilvie was was in the room when the first EBT was issued to the very first uh, to Craig Moore. Uh, he was the company uh, secretary, I believe, at the time, and he was the president of the SFA. He knew all about this and didn't do anything about it. Right, so there's a there's a toxic relationship that has always been there. Uh, between Celtic uh, and the SFA, and Celtic have been demonstrably uh, misled and lied to by the SFA over over many years. So this is un this, this is a digit this is a doogie doogie moment for the digital age. That's what this is. Okay, that's why it's important. Nothing to do with far. Nothing to do with what side referees are on, who they support, which lodge they go to, and bollocks like that. This is to do with the SFA. That's where we should be focusing our attention and their and their relationship with specifically Celtic, but, mm -hmm. but really uh, by extension, their relationship with with ninety nine percent of the clubs in Scotland and the contemptuous way that they treat them. That's the issue, and this is another example of that. I, I don't dispute that, okay, but I guess my my biggest issue is that this is a systematic issue this is the sfa pushing forward with var when neither the grounds nor the people using the technology are ready for it they're not trained for it they're not ready for it and the grounds aren't ready for it and where, where i fall on this issue is that okay we were playing against motherwell in fur park fur park isn't a dilapid ground it's a big ground in scottish football terms six cameras is just not enough for this situation. And it was proven to be that case because I'm sure not many people have actually been in a director's box for football matches, but the, the line, the guy operating that camera would have been told in. Are the, you saying you ear, have fancy pants? Is that what I you're have? Implying? Yes, that okay. is, that just is what to I'm make sure. Okay. Go so what, what's happening there is everybody is sitting in a room and the director is going to say to the camera in cameraman in his ear, get a B-roll shot of Ange reacting to whatever's going on in the pitch. And, and that may or may not be used in the broadcast, but that's what the camera was essentially being used for, was B-roll. And my issue here, Alan, is that if 
the SFA had waited until they were ready from a technology standpoint, they would have had more than six cameras. They used 34 at a minimum in the Premier League, by the way, 34. So a multiplication of what, six um, compared to what we had in Motherwell the other day. If they did not push ahead, if they waited until they were ready with the technology and invested in it properly, there would be all of this evidence would be ready to go. We would have it there. There would not be these mistakes and we would have further clarity on what's going on here. Because while, while I, I agree that all of what you're, what you're saying is correct, it would not happen if they did not make the mistakes in the first place. And they wouldn't cover their asses if they had just prepared correctly for this. Because that's so, what they're doing. They're just that, covering their ass here. Yeah. That's all they're doing. Yeah, no, no, exactly. And that's the story. The story isn't... So but everything you're be, saying is correct. There would be no asses to cover if they actually copped themselves on and funded the thing correctly. Oh, there'd always be mistakes. The question is how you deal with the mistakes. And that's that's the, 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 the biggest reveal for any company or any organization is how do you deal with mistakes? It's always the case. How do you deal with when things go wrong? And things always go wrong. Okay, so everything you've said is, is right, and it's probably um, atypical of the of such an antiquated, backward, mediocre, talentless organisation like the SFA that they would implement it in this way. Absolutely, one hundred percent. But that's not the story. The story, whether you had VAR or you didn't have VAR, the story is the FSA SFA response to to things going wrong. That's that's the issue. Not nothing to do with VAR. I agree with what you're saying about VAR. I completely understand what you're saying. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about how that organization deals with with a member club. So what's the solution here? The solution? Well, it's, it's you know, what is the reason for this? It's cultural. You know, it's cultural. The, 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 you know, the, we know we know what the predominant culture in Scottish football has been for 150 years. Um, and the SFA are 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 a uh, Henry Henry McLeish did a did a study on Scottish football, you know, twelve years ago was it, and he talked about, you know, the, how the fact that the you know the culture of the SFA was, you know, akin to that of a bowling club or a golf club, you know, the sort of jolly boys club, and 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 all the implications of that in terms of you know it it, it it's there for like minded people, and we all know what that means in the Scottish context, and and just the mediocrity of it. They simply, it's not, it's not run like a modern organization in, in any sense. You know, it, they've got far too many people, for example, working there. There are far too many people administrating football. You could streamline it, make it far more efficient, far more uh, professional. Uh, those are the things that need to happen. That's what McLeish said should, be, should have been done 12 years ago. Um, all, all, all we can do is, is, is hope that Celtic, you know, go into bat for, 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 um, for, for Celtic in, in this regard. Hard, but also that um, you know we, we just keep putting pressure on, calling it out where, it, where where we see it, uh, and I hope that you know Scottish football one day you know modernises itself in terms of its administration because that's that's the core of the issue here. Is, you know, the core of this has always been the SFA, you know, because and, and, and people people get away with bad behaviour because the SFA allowed them to. Yeah. The I again I've had to stop myself from laughing when you were talking about the the old men's club because I mean that, that that's what <laughs> so many football associations people think they're these amazingly well run businesses when in reality they're old grey men in suits that have been in the same position for about twenty five thirty years and can't be moved because of old regularly uh, statuses 
the FAI Ireland are a prime example of this. It, it took them 20 odd years and a mistake for the from the the main man in charge to say oh john delaney took a mistake from him it was, it was pure corruption well, mistakes, and everybody knew about mistakes, it mistakes it, mistakes it, of it was, mistakes doing a whole lot of heavy lifting there and uh, <laughs> no no it was it was no what, what i mean yeah. is um it yeah. was uh it, well he wasn't making mistakes he knew what he was doing but what i mean is this was an an open secret from the fai that John Delaney was corrupt, that he was siphoning money out of their organizations, that there was uh, bum deals all over the place. And it came down to him making a mistake by taking, trying to take an injunction against one of the, uh, an investigative journalist. And because he took the injunction, it went to the high court and everything was exposed. And then that's when the house of cards came crumbling down. So for me, I, I struggle with the SFA stuff because when is that house of cards going to crumble what's going to cause that to crumble and i i think that comes from the press and the media and their responsibility in all of this rather than fans that's i don't think the burden of proof should fall onto the fans to try to prove that the sfa is corrupt because that's where you see the breeding ground of uh sort of these conspiracy theories that grow yeah no i mean this this i mean you know this is why resolution 12 was such a uh such a, a missed opportunity because that was the smoking gun that was the smoking gun because that was all that was all about the sfa and their decision to hand uh, rangers as was a, a um a license to play in europe in the 11 12 season sorry if i've got that wrong was it 10 11 11 12 i think it was 11 12 season um and and the fact that they um they knew that there were um you know uh, ta tax arrears uh, they were overdue and the, and the license should not have been issued and it was now you can argue as who lied to who, or who misled who, or who, um, what have you? But that that those are those are matters of fact established in in, in court, uh, and and, and there is evidence, and it was all been provided to Celtic. That was that was a chance to to fire a smoking gun, as it were. James, you wanted to come in on this, I think, did you? Yeah, I, I was just going to uh, do a ridiculous analogy, which is. You know, this and actually, I've heard this used in a broader context, which I think is a, a, a good, a far better analogy. But, um, you know, with the, the, the with the entrance of the printing press in the. 50 How would you like to look five years younger in a clinical study? People that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. 
Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 15th century precipitated the great religious upheavals in Europe, the Reformations, and then the Thirty Years' War, right? As people realized that the stuff that they were being shoveled the nonsense, you know, the, the gatekeepers with their, you know, Latin and the information came democratized and everyone realized, holy crap, this is a, quite the thing they've got going here. And it created all this upheaval. And uh, the Internet has largely kicked off a, a similar period, meaning that you've democratized and crowdsourced information. And within that context, like this is a down this is like a little mini fractal of that, which is what VAR is going to do here is it's going to make it so patently ridiculous for people who are in on it, meaning that the peddlers of and I don't mean in a conspiracy sense, meaning that, you know, modern journalism has become corporate journalism has become about access. Right. Uh, and you can't, you know, sacrifice access in kind of oligopoly or monopolistic industries or else you're out of business like you can't really do hard investigative journalism because if you if you put anyone's feet to the fire they're going to can you you're done um so this is you're starting to see it i think is that kind of mainstream journalists are starting to say, i mean how can you deny some of this stuff this, the lights being shown on it and the way alan's documented this kind of stuff it's getting to the point where okay your 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 explanation could be reasonable and uh, absent all of this other stuff, right? And and if you just kind of dropped in from Mars or from outer space and just saw this in its own essence, you could say, oh, it's just because they're incompetent and you know it just happened to be the way that they dealt with it. And even Alan's chronicling of this, you could say, you know, in theory, it's due to incompetence. But that you know, at some point, you just have to say stop like this is nonsense well, there's a pattern um, there's a pattern yeah well right and there's a pattern and and the logical sequencing of the pattern is such that you know you have to you lose credibility your own credibility as a journalist as you know to, to the point where you fracture the audience you lose completely any kind of relationship of trust and and we've been seeing that in media generally i mean God knows it's being in America, <laughs> living through the Trump era. That's what that's all about. So um, this is just another little symptom of that. And they're, they're going to not be able to defend it. Um, 
in any kind of reasonable way. And then they just start gaslighting. So I, I think we're at that point now where it's, we're going to go down just the pure gaslighting route um, where they're just going to keep, you know, uh, I love the one meme that goes around, you know, don't back down, double down, right? Triple down, quadruple down. They'll just keep gaslighting. Or the hope is maybe that they have to because of the pressure that, that builds. Um, and even outside of, you know, uh, Celtic, I mean, again, it's, it's, this is not happening in isolation. This is not all about culture. There's also, or I should say that it is the culture, but it's the culture of, of, um, low standards and, and, you know, accepting mediocrity or worse. And Alan has rightfully talked about in recent weeks as well is about putting people in bad position. Um, the quality just isn't there. So that that's where this all gets really messy is because how much of it is this all stuff that we kind of all know is there and they're making what VAR is doing is shining a light that it's there on top of the incompetence, on top of the low quality, on top of all of these other things. And I would think that a lot of, you know, again, because a lot of these clubs are reasonably professional and you're getting more and more serious people getting involved in different ways in ownership with these different clubs you know, you would think there would be more of a of a push to say enough is enough. Um, we need to act like this is actual a credible sporting uh, enterprise and, and not just, you know, uh, the Tiger King of global football. Yeah, I mean, listen, ch change is always very slow and, and then it happens all of a sudden, right? So there's a couple of things that are happening, okay, at the moment which I'm not saying to you, Ender, are going to be golden bullets, uh, silver bullets, whatever, but they're just indicative of maybe it's all pressure. Pressure builds, okay? So a couple of things. One is, you know, there were no Scottish referees at Euro 2020. There are no Scottish referees, that, as far as I'm aware, that refereed in any of the latter stages of any of the major European club competitions last 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 year. And, and, and I don't remember seeing any in the Champions League group stages either right that starts to become noticeable there's no scottish referees going to the world cup that's that's appalling you know as one of the founder members as, as a member of the ifab board right that's appalling as people should start to talk about that and notice that okay the second thing is in terms of the overall competence of the scottish football association um is that is that these financial sustainability rules are, are, are very interesting and they're very interesting uh, in very dull ways but very dull ways are ways that people use to manage things better uh, the, the most interesting things are often very dull so for what do I mean by that so the whole the whole premise when the, the the cornerstone of the financial sustainability rules is the quarterly reporting and the quarterly reporting is uh, quite uh, demanding in terms of the amount of information that has to be provided, financial information I'm talking about. But the key thing is, is that in previous times, that information uh, would have been A, requested annually, and B, it would have been delegated to the local association to gather that information and then to make a decision on things like licensing. That what's a, by, by centralising that in, in UEFA, uh, what UEFA are saying is, Effectively, um, we don't trust some of you to do your jobs properly, and you know what? <laughs> you know, because the guy, the guy who's in charge of, of UEFA licensing, Treviso, is the guy who wrote to Celtic shareholders confirming that, uh, as far as UEFA can, were concerned, there was no point in pursuing the old Rangers because they were a different club, 
and um, therefore they, they couldn't be fined or anything because uh, it was now a new club. And he confirmed that in writing as a letter that from the head of UEFA licensing that confirms this. Treviso is the one who is is the one who has um, put together the uh, the new financial he's part of the, one of the architects of the financial sustainability rules. Uh, and he knows he knows what goes on in Scotland. And I'm not saying that you know the financial sustainability rules are a result of Scottish SFA. It, as you can imagine, around Europe and all the different countries, there are many SFAs that are a bit rogue and got bad practices. So this is in response to many, many issues, many, many factors, I am sure. But the point is that this is a very, very different way of doing things. And it essentially, essentially it's taking authority and control away from the SFAs and essentially saying, you weren't doing this properly. This is how we're going to do it from from from, from going forward. I, I used to work for a, a global organisation, and this was a constant battle between, yeah, you guys in the regions are not doing this properly. We're going to start doing this globally. Uh, and it's, it's a constant tension. But so there's just a couple of examples there of how things are... are, are one, one thing which is going to start to become very noticeable and people are going to start ask, asking questions, and then another which is a very different way of doing things that is going to shine a light on uh, how things were done previously. Yeah, and I should clarify as well that when I talk about uh, not wanting to talk about VAR, I'm I'm not I don't mean to stick my head in the sand and just pretend that all this isn't isn't going on. And I get as as annoyed as as most people do with these decisions. But my problem is is that except for today, as today was a much better example of how you can actually discuss VAR as a wider issue. And um, how many people listen to multiple Celtic podcasts and every single one of them will just be talking about VAR for 25 to 30 minutes. That's just well, what I noise. don't want yeah. this to become. No, I'm with and you. and I'm it's with fine you. to make noise and it's fine. So it's, it's all that there. But what I do, what I tend to do is I tend to switch off because there is over, there's, there's too much, too much information is ends up being drowned out. That's why, for example, you don't hear about every single atrocity in the world all the time because people just eventually just become numb to it because they don't want to listen to all this bad stuff. So I, I think there's a fine line between us discussing VAR and every podcast in Scotland becoming the VAR show as opposed to what happened on the pitch. So that's that's sort of my key issue with this is that we end up down a rabbit hole where Sky Sports are talking about it, the you know the record are talking about it, 20 Minute Tims are talking about it, Axum are talking about it, Sixty-seven Hill Hill are talking about it. We're talking about it, and every single person is just talking about the exact same thing, which is essentially what I don't want to go down every single week. So that's that's more my no, stance no, with you. on VAR and not. You know, I'm with you. Listen, uh, listen, what, what, broader situation that we're talking about. You know, Swend- Swendel, Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And no issue with any of that because uh, you know, as you say, people will always make poor decisions. What I, where I want to get to is a place where people make peer decisions and those decisions are randomly distributed amongst all the clubs because you know because and that's just the way it is and that isn't particularly interesting but we're not we're not there yet um you know so so the the reason that the reason that you know I also do the honest mistakes thing is because you know I I guess I instinctively know that there's a there's a cultural problem here and and how and my and I, I genuinely want to know understand how does it manifest itself in the data that's where i'm coming at it from mm-hmm. but to do that you have to filter out a lot of the noise that you're talking about because i get really frustrated when i go onto twitter after every single weekend and there's a scattergun approach of people throwing oh look at this one. did you see that call and that and it's like whoa 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 whoa. 90 percent of what you've just described is probably the right decision 
you know, if probably more. Yeah. So that's why I, I get a neutral person to look at it and focus just on those number, small number of incidents. And it is a small number of incidents that are nevertheless key to a game, which are actually wrong. And then you sort of say, once you've filtered out all that noise, you know, what, what, what is the pattern? That's that's what I'm. That's the perspective I'm coming at it from. Not to to, to mm-hmm. go, you know. It's, it's like all that fuss on Saturday um, with the referee sending people off the pitch when they were injured or not or not sending them off the pitch. He, everything he did was with it was exactly within the law law five uh, of the game. That just creates that just creates so much noise and so much unnecessary negative energy, and it actually shrouds. What should be the interesting aspect, which is the pattern of behaviour of the referee around some of the small things, some of the oh, that's a foul when it's a Celtic player, but it's not a foul when it's a Ross County player. And we've seen that quite a few times recently. And then you know the the, the interpretation of the handball rule again, another refreshingly um, you know uh, variable <laughs> interpretation of that law. These are the key things. You know, there's so many nice things that you have you got to filter out, and and I think I think we're agreeing on that on that point for sure. But yeah, over, what I will continue to do is to is to, is to look for patterns in the data. Well, it's what it comes down to. I, I think I think overall we are agreeing upon pretty much everything. We're just coming across from it from a, two different perspectives. Ultimately, I I, I um, think the the other issue here is that when you when you go down the rabbit hole of um. And, and and completely valid, justified, understandable rabbit hole, right? But then you, as you start going deeper and deeper down the hole, all of a sudden, everything gets turned into a conspiracy of cheating, right? So you go from, okay, there is some cheating going on. There's some questionable decisions. There's, you know, all these things that we've talked about already on the show here um, that, that are fairly nuanced and complicated to the point where there's like a overt effort to, um, you know, screw Celtic, not only on the grand scale, but on every single call. Right. So now almost every call now gets to be like just a hysterical, um, you know, (laughs) uh, barrage of accusations that the referees a cheat. And again, this is where you get back to this mosaic between competence and cheating and how, you know, it's been my view that the vast majority of this is just, they're just awful referees uh, to a large degree with some of these other things that, that we're talking about that on the margins absolutely have a huge material impact. Um, but how do you kind of break it down between those? It gets really complicated. And this goes back to the things that Alan talks about so, um, so, so proficiently about credibility and transparency and how trust, know, you, trust removed out. Exactly. Removed out. Yeah. Don't, don't have referees whose brother plays for, for Rangers. Yeah. Remove the doubt. And then, and then yeah. it will become a question of competence. It will be a question, of, which is fairly dull to, to, to discuss. And it will be evenly distributed. But at the moment, yeah. mm-hmm. it's not it's not seen to be that way. So there's no trust because of that doubt. That's yeah. So l- l- let me g- give you an example because it's it's I've, I've encountered a lot on on Twitter in the last couple of years, and I actually did a little bit of work on it to kind of see the degree of it. But um, you know, I I think we'd probably agree the three of us that um, Celtic for sure. I, I'd also argue to agree not to the same degree, but it. it in the same direction of travel that Celtic and Rangers get officiated different than the rest of the teams in the league, almost like a sympathy, uh, 
a sympathy thing, meaning that uh, these poor small clubs are trying to compete against the two monsters in Glasgow, and therefore they tend to get officiated differently. I think there's also reasonable um, evidence that it tilts even more so against uh, Celtic in that regard. Um, but uh, the fact, you know, the idea that the fouling rate disparity between Celtic relative to possession is a ironclad justification for this wide scale cheating. I, you know, again, I've done the work on it. It's just not, it's not good. It's not a quality um, uh, piece of evidence to make that argument. And that, this becomes the problem is that when you start levying accusations to support an argument that are provably shaky at best, probably not good at all. Um, then you start undermining, right? So if the idea here is to influence and to try to stick to things like Alan has done in his article that are tangible, provable, legitimate, um, I think that's the pathway to get change, at least theoretically, and and not you know taking everything that you can grab out and you know lob it in yeah. as as a hand grenade to try and prove yeah, a point. Agreed. Um, and, and I, and yeah, I think that, that's, that weakens the legitimate arguments. It does. I, that's my concern. So, you know, it, it's not that I don't want this, these things to happen. It's just that, you know, and I honestly, I thought into it's intuitive. Like, I don't think it's crazy to think that possession should correlate with foul rate. Right. So, I mean, I think that's a reasonable kind of conclusion to come to, but actually when you delve into it, eh, not so much because it depends on the style of play and disparity. And, you know, so there's a lot of nuances to it. So, um, so yeah, I, I, that that's the only other thing I wanted to say is because it, it's, you know, there's I think there's a, a direction of travel a lot of supporters want. We're all kind of sw pulling in the same direction, but the big question, and I think it's a really good one, is okay. Well, how do you actually make it change? Like, what's mm -hmm. wh how do we instead of just pissing and moaning about this, like what's going to actually make it get better or, or address it? Um, and you know, in my mind, going on and on about things that are tough to prove. If not, you know, there's a pretty good argument to disprove them uh, is is not productive. Yeah. So I think we'll park it on minute 52 of the podcast. Um, and this is, again, this is one of the reasons why I don't particularly like going down these routes is that you end up, you can talk for days about it without actually <laughs> reaching no, any end point. And, no no uh, one's watching we, us. Everyone was watching Scotland play Turkey anyway, right? Well, yeah, that's that the, huge friend. That's a game on, that is the game on everybody's mind is Scotland against Turkey. Uh, well, what, did you have a score there? No. 2-1. Um, uh, Turkey 1-2. Two, 2-1 two, to, to Turkey. Okay. Yeah. Um, there was a game at the weekend and amongst the VAR discussions, and that was Celtic 2, <laughs> Ross County 1. There was a penalty given against Celtic, and look, again, we're, we're not going to go into that because I think we've done enough on uh, the VAR discussions for this evening. But I guess, Alan, really quickly, 2-1 Celtic, nine points clear, best-case scenario that we could have hoped for uh, from this weekend. A bright spark from the weekend is definitely Rio Hotate. Yeah, well, yeah. Although there was a, there was a few. I mean, you know, undoubtedly, I'm not being contrarian because I mean he produced the the moments, the magic moments that actually won the game. And so, uh, for that reason alone, I, I wouldn't disagree with him being being man of the match. Um, but I just thought it was telling the reaction because you know, okay, I'll, I'll not will not dive into the specifics of the penalty. I'll wait for my expert to come back to me on that one. But what it undoubtedly did do on the back of other 
other um, sort of either perceived or real <laughs> injustices in the first half in terms of some of the decisions was it absolutely you know fired up the the park at uh, Celtic Park crowd. And there was a sort of, you know, almost like a seething cauldron from the 50th minute. And what I thought was really interesting um, was the reaction of certain players to that. Um, and I, and the reason and it was in my mind because I, I, I've always got, I wrote an article on on Moritz Jens last week, um, and I still and, and, and because of that I looked obviously at Starfelt and Carter Vickers, and I still I still have this. You know why is Starfelt so? You know he comes out so badly in the data in terms of defensive actions. And this, you know, I'm not saying that my methodology is foolproof, but it it's pretty it's proved pretty accurate over the last sort of seven years in terms of you know matching the outcomes and who who ended up being really good and who actually you know we got rid of and all that sort of thing. And Starfelt's right down the bottom of of that data. But it, it, I think there's something of this about you know the whole Postecoglou thing of you know he looks at the, the man first and the and the and the data second if you like or the the, the you know and, and 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 what occurred to me was there were certain players that just seemed to really positively respond to the adversity and really sort of try and take the game by the scruff of the neck we talked about O'Reilly doing that against Dundee United I think he did it again you know because he he felt a personal injustice having been pinged for the handball incident but he he personally drove on I thought David Turnbull was terrific. He really tried to drive the team forward. Carter Vickers and Starfelt. I think the thing with Starfelt, just to finish on that point, as I say, is that I just think Carter. I think the manager just thinks he's somebody that he's happy to have in the trenches with him, and he's somebody who he's an aggressive defender. He's a good character. He's a strong leader, uh, and, and 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 his game doesn't get disrupted by mistakes. We've seen this. We saw what a terrible start he had to his Celtic career, and he's just come back from injury, but. He just gets on with it. And I think it's that sort of attitude that the the manager likes. And I thought we saw that. I thought Celtic fed off the energy of the crowd, but also were really calm about their business. Um, you know, if you notice, they don't get involved in any in, in any nonsense off the ball. They don't get involved with other players. They don't argue necessarily with the referee. They're very focused on their work. And I think that comes from the manager. And I think we saw that. You see that. We talked earlier about... You see the true nature of things when they're stressed. We talked about companies when they make mistakes. That's when you see them in their true light and how they deal with these mistakes. Celtic were under the cosh there. You know there was a real chance to end the um, you know the this mini break in the season on a high, and it was under threat because 50 minutes, one goal down, an opponent that had been playing really well. They, they were very coherent about the. I thought they alternated between their low block and they pressed really intelligently. In fact, even at the end of the first half. I was thinking Ross County. This is a template for how Celtic should play in Europe. They were very, they were very focused in their pressing efforts. They were, they were very, uh, you know, they did only did it occasionally and they did it very well. And then the rest of the time they were they had this very very solid organisation. Celtic were in a, a little bit of a hole, but they very calmly got themselves out of it. And certain players that I've mentioned. Uh, just went about their business, upped their tempo a little bit, and sort of dragged Celtic over the line. Uh, and, and actually, by the time that Celtic had scored their two goals, Ross County were pretty much spent. They had nothing left, and Celtic were able to then see out the game very comfortably. And, and actually, the end mm. the end stats for the game were as comfortable as as many others have been. So I just thought it was a, again a really mature uh, performance that just highlighted the upside of the way the manager looks at 
the personalities and the character of the players that he's he's selecting and how that can manifest itself when it's stressed in situations such as this. James? Yeah, I I think it's just the continued... I'm not going to, because we're getting close to the hour here, but I, so I'll just say ditto to everything Alan said relative to, um, you know, kind of battening down the hatches and really getting through the game. And and this speaks to what we've talked about the last couple of weeks about, you know, kind of the pseudo-December period where you just need to get through it. And I think what's so impressive is that we're getting through it in a just a high like everything else domestically under Ange, just at a higher level, right? So even in the games where we're kind of struggling a little bit or you have an opponent that's actually coherent and implementing a smart game plan, um, you know, the end result from a performance perspective is coming out in a way that it's just really impressive. Um, and, and, and the consistency of it as well is what's so mm-hmm. impressive. So, you know, to me, to me what this suggests particularly with us now being out of Europe um, when, when everyone gets back from the world cup is, I mean, it, I, you know, you never, never want to jinx things too much, but it, it's going to be really difficult to close a gap on us with this situation. Um, and, and, you know, the Rangers will have to be nearly perfect. Uh, mm-hmm. In order to put any kind of pressure on us, I think I, I don't think that they can much drop anything in the second half um, to, to, to even theoretically put this into a title race. Um, so, it, you know, that that's the the cheerful part of this to me is that, you know, if there was going to be a time of the, the season, it was going to be this piling up of the fixtures. Um, the second round in the league was a little bit tougher than the first relative to where we were going. You know, we still have to go to Ibrooks, obviously, but, you know, generally speaking, the, the fixtures were kind of swinging back in a tougher direction. So, you know, the fact that we've, from a performance perspective, you know, there's, you're going to have 38 games, you're going to have the, you know, the squeaky bum two ones and, <laughs> you know, that kind of situations. Um, but for us to basically have one game that's been an issue, you know, it, yeah. it, it's just so impressive. I always think that people look at professional football in a different way to normal everyday amateur sports, which in a way it is right. But you also have to look at this from a perspective of human beings. And I thought the reaction from the players after the game told you all you needed to know about what they felt that they had achieved by getting over the line. Yeah, you look at Jota running into the goal as a substitute, firstly to win back the ball and get the ball back into play very quickly after the first goal. But then you look at the reaction from Ainz, the reaction from the players. That was a real fuck yeah moment for the the players. They're like that that's the that's the type of game there where you just feel absolutely ten foot tall after winning because you faced adversity and you got through it. And that for me is what a champion's team is built upon it's these little wins here where you know you can go and batter St. Marin or whoever it is 6-0 and that's fine it builds confidence but these for these games for me these wins they they mean a lot more uh, to a team and bringing the team together as a unit um, overall I think uh, that's what I was most pleased about was they were able to come back and it, was, well, it looked like it, they, they really would have been very pleased with that win and I and I I think what it also opens up, and we've talked about this kind of hypothetically, but it, it starts to add more credence, I think, to the potential for this to be, 
you know, kind of a, uh, a template, you know, one, one of the, the, the seasons and teams, domestic campaigns that get put in that rarefied air, you know, the invincibles, you know, the, the, where you, where you have one of those seasons where, um, you know, the performance levels are just so good, not only from an underlying perspective, um, but uh, as importantly, or obviously more importantly, is, you know, racking up 100 plus points, scoring 105 plus goals, you know, th- those kind of things that I think are more and more coming up like it, it, it's, you know, maybe, maybe not likely yet, but the potential there is really hmm. um, going up in, on the probability scale. We're not leaning on, sorry, and we're not leaning on one or two players. You know, no. people were questioning, right? Maida, Maida comes on at Motherwell, gets the crucial second goal with a brilliant piece of technical skill and, and running. You know, Turnbull's hardly been in the team that much. He's set, he set up that goal and then he's got the the, the, the opener uh, to the, on Saturday and played really well. Haksabanovic is new, settling in. Suddenly he's scoring a few key goals. Burnaby came in, I thought he was terrific um, as well. So everybody's contributing. Things what I'm trying to say in a very long-winded way is that you know it's not we're not leaning on Kyogo, we're not leaning on Callum McGregor. McGregor's not even played for yeah. weeks, right? So everybody's contributing, and that's the key thing. Yeah, big time. Uh, they're St. Mirren were obviously the worst example I could possibly have picked up for hammering giving they're the only team that have beaten us this season. But uh, listen, we, we live and learn. They're they're a team that I remember Celtic beating 6 0 at one point in time. So uh, look, there is uh, one game for Celtic to look forward to, and that's tomorrow morning in the Sydney Cup, 8 45 a.m. is the kickoff time. I didn't know. Uh, yes, I, didn't I, know. I, I, I think so. 8 45 a.m. I think I'm not sure if that's the local time that is kicking off, but no, no, that's, no that's, I, it's, that's it's UK so it's, time. Yeah, yeah, UK time. That's UK time because for me okay. it's uh, three forty-five a.m. So I, I will not be watching that one live. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll just be getting up. Well, it's on Celtic clips. TV. Yeah, yeah. So you'll be able yeah. to see the rerun, James, if you got Celtic TV. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, I, oh, I think oh, we will. That's a little bonus for my day. <laughs> Listen, it's it's always good to have these games, especially when we're going into a, a windowless weekend of football. So um, hopefully anybody who is watching in Australia, I know quite a few people tune in from Australia. I hope you really enjoy having Celtic in your country. It must be amazing to finally get to see them in person. So I hope everyone enjoys the Sydney Cup if you're an Aussie and if you're going to be watching at home, then enjoy that as well. Um, look, we will be continuing on with the podcast even when we have the World Cup. So if you have any suggestions of anything that you want us to cover in depth do leave them in the comments or send us a tweet at hollow breakdown as well we'll try cover as much ground in depth as we can over the next couple of weeks while the world cup is on as well so uh, that is our podcast for today my thanks to Anne and james as always and to you for listening and watching uh, and tuning in on youtube if you want to get us it's hollow breakdown on youtube if you want to subscribe and see us every week or if you want to listen to us you can get us in the usual places on spotify itunes and wherever you get your podcast until next time we'll chat to you later good luck Time to play the game. Time to play the game. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about.
Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.